0: today the bowery boys episode 328 chop suey
1: city a history of chinese food in new york hey it's the bowery
2: boys hey support for the bowery boys is provided by our listeners join us for as little as a dollar a month by visiting patreon.com slash bowery boys hi
1: there welcome to the bowery boys this is greg young with a salute today to a business to a vital food institution that new york city and america could not do without the chinese restaurant new yorkers eat a lot of chinese food i myself eat a lot of chinese food and the city has enjoyed chinese cuisine either in a restaurant or as takeout for well over 130 years Chinese food entered the regular diet of New York City long before the bagel, the hot dog, and even pizza. Now, during this pandemic period and across the country, Chinese restaurants have been hit especially hard for a variety of reasons. There have been food distribution issues. Employees at small corner restaurants might live far away from their place of business and are unable to come in or feel it is unsafe to come in. And due to the source of the outbreak of COVID-19 in Wuhan, China, Asian Americans have experienced widespread discrimination and harassment, and have even led some diners to baselessly stay away from Chinese restaurants. Now these restaurants are almost never franchise places, they're frequently family owned. And for a business that thrives on takeout and delivery people, some businesses have not wished to risk the health of their employees. But finally, many are at last opening now, slowly throughout the city and throughout the country. This show is dedicated to my local corner Chinese place, which just opened up this week, and a history of Chinese food in New York in general. Another example of the contributions of immigrants being embedded into the fabric of American life. But let's get one concept out of the way here, and that is the concept of authenticity. Is American Chinese food authentically Chinese? Of course not. You can go to any Chinatown in the New York area and find restaurants that feature popular dishes like General Chow's Chicken and other dishes that are perhaps unfamiliar the food a traditional chinese american household might serve is different than what may be served at your corner store and might certainly be different than meals served in china to quote from author jennifer eight lee quote authenticity is a concept that food snobs propagate not one that reflects how people really cook and eat on a daily basis improvisation and adaptation have defined cuisine throughout history at a certain point, that which is exotic stops being so. It becomes, in a new way, authentic to its own home, unquote. That's why Chinese food is New York food, actually American food. It's as American as spaghetti and bagels and tacos because it has become so. To use another example here, now, as some of you know, I grew up, actually, in Springfield, Missouri, in the Ozarks, which is, let me just tell you, just like the TV show. Well, anyway, and there in Springfield, you will find dozens of Chinese restaurants. It is, in fact, the most popular cuisine in the Ozarks. It's where they serve Springfield-style dishes like cashew chicken, deep-fried and slathered in sauce and sometimes served at large buffets alongside a salad bar and a soft-serve ice cream machine. But all the finest establishments there will advertise themselves as serving authentic cashew chicken, because it is tailored over the decades to a very different taste palette. And here in New York today, you'll find examples of Americanized Cantonese... High-end Hunan, spicy Sichuan over cocktails, and the delights of dim sum. All of them delicious, and all of them authentically New York. On January 24th, 1848, gold deposits were discovered at Sutter's Mill in California, leading to that mad American phenomenon of greed and opportunity known as the Gold Rush. Now, while California did become the 31st state in the Union in 1850, it was very distant in so many ways from the rest of the United States. The first Chinese immigrants arrived that year, at first, enterprising businessmen who helped to develop the outpost of Yerba Buena, which had recently been renamed San Francisco, and it was here where the first Chinese restaurants in North America opened. In a city flush with cash, these restaurants could be quite elaborate, two or three floors flamboyantly decorated centers of both business and pleasure. Now, more important than these restaurants to the story were the very first Chinese farmers to American soil. To quote author David Coe, Using skills learned on the intensively cultivated plots of the Pearl River Delta, the immigrants had begun to grow vegetables soon after arriving. As they learned the business and how to grow crops in the dry but temperate California climate, they came to dominate this agricultural niche. These first Chinese men, they were Cantonese speakers from the coastal province of Guangdong, as were many thousands who then came next to America, laborers who were hired by the rail company Central Pacific to help build the transcontinental railroad in the 1860s. Almost the entire workforce was Chinese by the time their railroad met up with the Union Pacific Railroad in Utah on May 10, 1869, completing this vital instrument of American growth. But the Chinese faced extraordinary discrimination on this project. They were paid less and generally not given room and board. They were also on their own in terms of food But through experience and networked food supplies with other Chinese laborers, they often ate more healthy meals. With the railroad completed by the 1870s, some Chinese attempted to settle throughout the West, yet many fled for their lives. White hatred of the Chinese brought on unprecedented restrictions in immigration, first with the Page Act in 1875 prohibiting Chinese women from entering the United States, then with the Chinese Exclusion Act in 1882, which banned almost all immigration from China. As a result, many moved back to China if they could— or to large urban centers, where small Chinese communities began forming, Chinatowns, and a large number of these laborers headed to New York. We can trace the first permanent Chinese community to the years just after the Civil War. Soon, a small Chinese enclave would develop around the area of Mott Street, slightly east of the notorious Five Points Slum. By the time Chinese laborers arrived to settle here from the West, the Chinese quarter of Manhattan had grown out to include shops, boarding houses, shrines, and later laundromats. Given the anti-Chinese sentiment that was gripping the nation in the 1870s, the newspapers preferred focusing on the Mott Street opium dens and gambling parlors, which often operated in the same buildings as groceries and variety stores. But it was here that the first Chinese restaurants opened, geared at first towards the Chinese population of the Mott Street area. Now, I'd like to explain why these first very modest eating establishments might have confused and generally freaked out a lot of white New Yorkers. In poorer areas of New York at this time, there really was not such a thing as a restaurant per se. The Brothers Delmonico opened their first restaurant in New York in the 1820s, but by the 1870s, dining was still pretty much relegated to the upper class. Eating out in lush, tablecloth quarters was simply out of reach for most New Yorkers, especially in immigrant communities. For everybody else, one could get food offerings from oyster houses, beer halls or saloons, Although the food choices in these places were limited, and the quality of very questionable nature. Chop houses also became popular by the 1870s, but they were limited to meat offerings that were hardly welcoming to most people. Those looking for a quick meal, of course, could also buy affordable food from push carts and later from delicatessens. But eating was rarely a communal experience. The first Chinese restaurants in New York were small, but they did offer seating. This was before the era of takeout, after all. And unlike the upscale French restaurants, where the food just magically appeared from someplace, in a Chinese place, people actually walked by the kitchen. Sometimes you walked through the kitchen to get to your seat, and you saw the food being prepared, which leads to the second big hurdle that these places had during the 1880s. New Yorkers were apparently frightened by what they thought were the ingredients in Chinese food. Now, by this time, a pair of Chinese farmers in the Bronx, Ah Wa and Ah Ling, were growing Asian vegetables specific for Chinese recipes. And many shops here on Mott Street and around the area were offering imported ingredients. But those more familiar with Western eating traditions believed that the Chinese used dogs, rats, and cats in their food, a misperception borrowed from white San Franciscans and a belief that some still hold today. Do the Chinese eat rats, said the New York Times in 1883. A large portion of the community believe implicitly that Chinamen love rats as Western people love poultry. For a population used to eating potatoes, beans, and unvarnished meat, the smells of a Chinese kitchen were considered strange and even ghastly. In 1884, the writer Edwin Trafton invited several adventurous friends to a dinner at the, quote, Chinese Delmonico's, which was a place called Changfowlo. He said, quote, I know you have a cosmopolitan palate and a cast iron digestive apparatus. Else, I should not have asked you to come. The first course will be brought on at 7 sharp, and stomach pumps may be ordered at 9 o'clock. Yet it was articles, like Trafton's here, that began imagining Chinatown as something exotic and out of the ordinary. And by the mid-1880s, there were a new group of white New Yorkers more than willing to experiment here. As they've been collectively called, those people were the Bohemians. Some might call them hipsters today, or perhaps just simply tourists. This group of often writers, artists, and just general gadabouts would hit the streets of Chinatown looking for adventure. Now, a similar kind of cultural tourism would also occur in the early 20th century when white downtowners flocked to the nightclubs of Harlem. But here in Chinatown in the 1880s and 1890s, Bohemians packed the streets, often obnoxiously so. And although the opium dens and the brothels certainly saw increased business during these days, the Bohemians came mostly food in 1886 a washington post journalist named alan foreman was convinced to eat at a restaurant owned by mong singhwa at 18 mott street by his friend a quote jolly new york lawyer of decidedly bohemian tendencies his friend said a chinese dinner is as clean as an american dinner only far better If it's not as clean as that Italian place where you eat spaghetti, I'll pay for the best dinner for two you can order at Delmonico's. Needless to say, Foreman had a wonderful experience. The meal was not only novel, but it was good, and to cap the climax, the bill was only 63 cents. Now, what drove Foreman and his friend to Chinatown here, what inspired thousands to visit Mott Street, Via the elevated Third Avenue Railroad, was not Chinese food generally, but one dish specifically an odd mishmash of a magical dish called chop suey. Chop suey is responsible for the mainstreaming of Chinese cuisine, which is ironic as most historians believe it was invented in America. According to Haiming Liu in his book From Canton Restaurant to Panda Express, quote, The rise of chop suey was a result of Chinese adaptation to the racial environment of American society. Chop suey is not a culinary wonder, but a meaningful social construct. Chop suey is not really even a dish, per se. It's more or less a stir fry of Meat and vegetables. It's truly a hodgepodge of ingredients. Today we might find it totally basic in taste, I think. As Jennifer A. Lee writes quote, Chop suey is the greatest culinary prank that one culture has ever played on another. But if you put chop suey in the context of 19th century European based food, that available to the middle and the working class, then you realize how interesting and mouth-watering this must have been, and at an extremely reasonable price. In 1896, Americans in general were really exposed to the idea of chop suey with the visit of the Chinese envoy Li Hongzhang. During a dinner served in the ballroom of the Waldorf Hotel, the Chinese diplomat fascinated onlookers with his use of those curious utensils known as chopsticks. Some reports claimed that his personal chef made chow chop suey for him and even invented it on the fly here at the Waldorf. Now, that is most certainly not true. However, local restaurants and cooks, seeing a good promotional opportunity here, most certainly tied this dish to the diplomat's visit. Whatever the case, New York went chop suey crazy. Most Chinese restaurants were called chop suey houses well into the 20th century. As a result, the restaurants of Chinatown quickly expanded to accommodate the higher profile. The massive Port Arthur restaurant opened in 1897 on the second and third floors of 7 Mott Street. It had a massive upscale dining room intricately decorated and a pagoda style balcony over the street. Then you had the Chinese tuxedo a short distance away at 2 Doyer Street with a second floor dining room that looked right into the passing elevated train. From a 1908 article in the New York Sun, under the banner, Onward March of Chop Suey. Quote, it has taken the American public a long time to swallow its chop suey, but every season a larger number of uptown patrons resort regularly to Chinatown to eat, and new chop suey restaurants are being opened without flourish of trumpets, but with considerable gilding and decoration. More importantly, the popularity of chop suey brought Chinese business owners into neighborhoods outside of Chinatown. In the year 1900, the New York Times proclaimed, Judging from the outbreak of Chinese restaurants all over town, the city has gone chop suey mad. These first chop suey restaurants were especially popular in entertainment districts like Times Square. As elite New York still thumbed its nose at this particular form of cuisine, chop suey houses became places for those shut out of certain eating establishments, in particular, African American New Yorkers. Harlem already had several chop suey houses by the time it became a mecca for black cultural life by the 1920s. You even begin seeing chop suey served outside of actual Chinese restaurants at first, only to middling success. In what is perhaps the first instance of a fusion atmosphere here in New York, a German proprietor opened a Chinese restaurant in the year 1908, but with German-American trappings and music. The owner proclaimed, quote, the American loves music with his food and chop suey with Beethoven or Grieg cannot fail to attract him. But while Chinese food would not go the Beethoven route, at least not yet, thanks to the diverse cultural landscape of New York City, it would break out and evolve in a variety of ways, and more and more people would learn to use chopsticks. We follow the journey of Chinese food into the nightclub, the cocktail lounge, and into the hearts of Jewish New Yorkers. After this... On April 19, 1995, a federal building in Oklahoma City was destroyed in a domestic terrorist attack. Just days after the bombing, America discovered the perpetrator was right wing extremist Timothy McVeigh, whose mindset and values are still very present today. It's an American tragedy, but one I still remember very vividly. But there is so much more to the story than what you might remember. Take a deeper look into this moment of history with the podcast Homegrown OKC, hosted by Jeffrey Tubin and based on his book. The Homegrown OKC podcast is about better understanding the political environment in our country today. In particular, I found fascinating all the original archival footage used in the show, sounds which brought me back to that time, but with a richer understanding of events. These episodes were thrilling to listen to. That's Homegrown OKC. To listen, search for Homegrown OKC in your podcast app. That's
2: Homegrown OKC. In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened. But soon, a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, Follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge this season's American History Tellers, The Underground Railroad, early and ad-free, right now on Wondery+.
0: today.
1: By the 1920s, Chop Suey had taken New York by storm. The cuisine was perfect for the Jazz Age, a medley of strange tastes, exotic, affordable, and probably a little confusing to your parents. From the New York Times in 1925, quote, Chop Suey has been promoted to a prominent place on the midday menus of the metropolis. This celestial concoction is no longer merely a casual commodity, it has become a staple. It is vigorously vying with sandwiches and salad as a noontime nourishment of the young women typists. At the lunch hour, there is an eager exodus towards Chinatown of the women workers employed on Franklin, Duane, and Worth streets. It is simply a good place to eat. Chop Suey seems destined to become necessary in New York life. By the 1920s, there were hundreds of Chinese restaurants throughout the five boroughs. Chop Suey is so jazz age that one of Edward Hopper's most famous paintings, which he created in 1929, is of a Chop Suey restaurant. And by the way, that painting recently sold at auction for $91.9 million dollars. Chop Suey is so jazz age that in 1926 Louis Armstrong even recorded a song inspired by it, Cornet Chop Suey. Meanwhile, by this time, New Yorkers were finally getting to sample another Asian cuisine in the neighborhood of Hell's Kitchen at places with names like the Taj Mahal Restaurant and the Ceylon Restaurant, Ceylon being the British colonial name of Sri Lanka. Now, these places would cater to New York's small South Asian communities and would remain, at least to white outsiders, an interesting culinary novelty. South Asian cuisine would finally find its spotlight on the culinary landscape in the 1980s and 90s with a row of East Village Indian restaurants, mostly owned by Bangladeshi proprietors, a series of brightly decorated restaurants nicknamed Curry Row. But back to our story here on Chinese food. By the 1930s, chop suey was inviting itself into every corner of the country with Chinese restaurants adopting occasionally kitschy names, which appealed to Western impressions of the East. Restaurants illuminated in beautiful examples of neon signage. Because American Chinese restaurants have so endured today, rooting themselves into small-town America, and were and are mostly family-run, you'll find that many of these old neon signs actually are still in operation, even when other neighboring restaurants around that Chinese restaurant have become franchises with flashy modern signs. The food, however, was anything but quote authentic. Scattered throughout the United States, they were inventing something new, Chinese American food. According to author Yang Chen, quote, "...those working in the restaurant business continued the historical role of the Chinese as service workers, doing their best to satisfy and accommodate the tastes and needs of their clientele, rather than insisting on serving what they regarded as authentic Chinese food." This explains why Chinese-Americans operating as individual proprietors without professional association with one another created highly consistent and recognizable lines of dishes across the nation, In most places, and especially here in New York City, Chinese restaurants also served traditionally American food even having at times two different menus so that one half of your dinner party could eat chow mein, which was another popular food which popped up here around the 1930s, somewhat related to an actual Chinese dish. So one half of the table could eat chow mein and the other half of your dinner party could eat a hamburger. Perceptions were changing slowly, but the adoption of Chinese food did not mean an equal acceptance of Chinese people in most communities, or Asian Americans generally. During World War II, even as the Chinese Exclusion Act was being repealed in the winter of 1943, the American government was placing Japanese Americans within internment camps. Americans could also reproduce the Chinese food experience in their homes by this time. In the 1920s, Customers could buy La Choy brand Asian products like soy sauce and noodles. And by the 1930s, Americans could bring cookbooks into their homes, many written by Asian chefs, including one Henry Lowe, the chef at the Port Arthur, that innovative restaurant that I mentioned earlier down on Mott Street. According to author David Coe, Lowe is one of two chefs in the 1930s claiming to have invented the egg roll, a delicious derivation of the more traditional spring roll. Now, when the Port Arthur opened in the late 19th century, it held a very important distinction and one that many of us would have appreciated. It was the first Chinese restaurant to hold an official liquor license. After the repeal of Prohibition, New Yorkers paired cocktails with everything. And Chinese food, with its communal, social aspect, it was perfectly suited for a night of cocktails. Or at least a woman named Ruby Fu Wong thought so. Wong has a life obscured in myth, one befitting the elegant establishments which would bear her name. Born in 1904, Wong opened her first restaurant in Boston before she was 30 years old. A glamorous figure wrapped in furs and strings of pearls, Wang opened Ruby Fu's Den as a heightened Chinese restaurant experience. To quote author Wing Kaito, quote, Her restaurant successfully catered to a non-Chinese and a celebrity clientele, marketed as Chinatown's smartest restaurant. The decor was artistic, and it appealed to elite customers, unquote. So naturally, New York needed one. And so Wong launched a satellite, Ruby Foo's Den, here in 1936 at 240 West 52nd Street, during an era when 52nd Street was the hottest place on Earth for nightlife. The so-called Swing Street, lined with neon-lit jazz clubs which stayed open late into the night. When it opened, the New York Daily News declared it the best Chinese eatery on the Dawn Patrol. After theater crowds rubbed shoulders with Broadway and television stars in Ruby Foo's lush banquettes, the restaurant was a frequent hangout for gossip columnist Walter Winchell, who kept his ears open for juicy news. The menu at Ruby Foo's included a variety of chop sueys, chow mains, chicken and bird nest soup, Egg Foo Young's, fried rice, many different kinds of fried chicken, and of course, an extensive cocktail list. Martinis were 25 cents. A luncheon menu with several courses could be had for 65 cents, or about $10 or $11 today. Wong even opened a place at the New York World's Fair of 1939 called Ruby Foo's Sundial Restaurant. It was here that you could enjoy champagne by the glass while taking in the wall-length mirrors decorated in Chinese floral motifs flanked with glass brick pillars and softly draped walls. Now, if that was too subtle for you, just wait until the 1940s. Now, in San Francisco, a string of Chinese-owned nightclubs and cabarets, such as the dazzling club known as Forbidden City... These places featured Asian-American singers and dancers in glitzy floor shows. In New York, the Times Square nightclub scene appropriated pretty much every international or ethnic culture that you could imagine, from the Copacabana to the El Morocco. But there was only one nightclub in New York which brought an exaggerated version of Chinese culture and cuisine into this mix, And that was the nightclub China Doll at 51st Street and Broadway. Now, although the club was exquisitely shallow in its presentation of Asian entertainment, many Asian American performers actually got their start here, including a young dancer and singer named Mary Taruko Watanabe, a.k.a. Mary Montoy. Watanabe was Japanese. After being held in a Japanese internment camp, In Idaho, Mary moved to New York City, went to Juilliard, and became a performer here at the China Doll. She later became one of the first Asian American Broadway stars and a prominent activist against Asian American discrimination in the arts. Ruby Foo's and the China Doll are, of course, outliers. But while many Chinese restaurants were modernizing in the 1940s and 50s to further appeal to non-Chinese customers, the cuisine itself didn't really change much, but it was still incredibly popular with certain loyal bases of support. And perhaps no group was more loyal to their corner Chinese restaurant than New York's Jewish residents. There are many reasons why so many Jewish families have nostalgic connections for the Chinese dining experience. For one, Chinese restaurants were open on Christmas, and the heart of Jewish New York, the Lower East Side, was near the heart of Old Chinatown. Today, new Chinese immigrants live in the same tenements where thousands of Eastern European Jewish immigrants once lived. Many Jewish families related to the Chinese as another group living on the outside of a mainstream white Christian culture. According to author Hannah Miller, quote, eating Chinese food has become a meaningful symbol of American Judaism. For an eating Chinese, the Jews found a modern means of expressing their traditional values. The savoring of Chinese food is now a ritualized celebration of immigration Education, family, community, and continuity. Unquote. This curious culinary partnership reached an exciting point in 1959 with the opening of Bernstein on Essex at 135 Essex Street, later called Schmelka Bernstein's, a Jewish Chinese restaurant with the slogan quote, where Kashrut is king and quality reigns. Kosher versions of popular Chinese dishes were served here by Jewish waiters in tasseled Chinese caps instead of yarmulkes. A favorite dish here was the lo mein Bernstein, served to pat crowds for over three decades. This was just a preview of the exciting changes to Asian dining in America, which occurred in the late 20th century. Now, in 1965... President Lyndon B. Johnson signed the Immigration and Nationality Act, tearing down the country's restrictive quota laws. Now millions of people could immigrate to the United States and from countries that had, up until this point, very minute representation. This law changed the United States to its core, and New York City in particular. In terms of Asian immigration, new enclaves began sprouting up all over the city. New Chinese communities in Flushing Queens, in Bensonhurst and Sunset Park, Brooklyn, a thriving Korean community on 32nd Street in Manhattan, Indians, Pakistanis, Bangladeshis, and Jackson Heights. With many thousands of new Chinese immigrants, this meant people from different regions of China introducing new variations of cuisine. Up until this point, most Chinese food was based upon cantonese dishes which by the 1960s had been heavily altered and americanized so you can imagine the excitement felt by many americans who grew up on chinese food when they first experienced the far spicier Sichuan and hunan styles leaning upon garlic and pepper as central ingredients then, thanks to Richard Nixon's trip to China in 1972, Chinese food once again became an extremely popular cuisine, this time in the high-end restaurant world. To quote from a 1976 restaurant review by John Kennedy, quote, "...with Chinese restaurants spotted multitudinously the length and breadth of Manhattan Island, systematic coverage is impossible." The Upper West Side was particularly eager for new tastes, welcoming a variety of Mandarin Chinese restaurants in the 1960s, then two decades later, becoming the home of so many Szechuan restaurants that the New York Times dubbed the neighborhood Szechuan Valley. With so many options on the menu now, you had General Chow's Chicken, Kung Pao Chicken, Orange Beef Dim Sum... This has meant, perhaps unfortunately, the almost total erasure of chop suey from any menu and a reduction down the menu of once lauded dishes like chow mein and egg foo young. Chinese food is one of the most important cuisines in the United States to this day. According to Tyra Wu over at Spoon University, according to the Chinese American Restaurant Association, the United States is currently home to more than 40,000 Chinese restaurants. This number is greater than all the McDonald's, KFC's, Pizza Hut's, Taco Bell's, and Wendy's in America combined. That number is kind of difficult to figure out here in New York because there are so many variations which have sprouted up since the 1960s. You've got Asian-Latin fusion, Indian Chinese, Cuban Chinese. The venues have changed too, many expressing a more pan-Asian vibe, serving Chinese food next to Japanese and Thai food. You had epic nightclub spaces such as Dao, at 58th Street, which opened in the year 2000. Down in the East Village, one could enjoy Chinese cuisine and a drag show at the campy Lucky Changs, which opened in 1993. And there was even a new version of Ruby Foos, which debuted in Times Square also in the year 2000. And yet you can still go back to the source, to Manhattan's Chinatown, while you'll still find a great many old Chinese restaurants serving traditional fare as the La Choy and Sichuan Valley never happened. And while you're wandering the streets of Chinatown, once everything is back in business here, please make your way to one of those first streets formative to the development of the Chinese American experience. Mott Street, Pell Street, and Doyers, where you'll find one of the most beloved Chinese establishments in the city, Namhua Tea Parlor, which opened 100 years ago this year. I want to dedicate this show to an institution that has had a really rough go of it in the past few months the Museum of Chinese in America. In January, a horrible fire tore through the archives of the museum destroying thousands of artifacts then because of the lockdown due to the coronavirus well that has kept the door shut of course on its center street gallery this is an exceptionally important cultural institution for new york and we do hope to see them back on their feet and we will be the first in line when they finally open their doors now, for more information, please check out our blog, BarryBoysHistory.com, where I'll have a lot of historic images of old Chinese restaurants past. A big thank you to everyone who is supporting the Barry Boys podcast on Patreon.com. For just a small donation, you really are helping this podcast, the website, everything, keeping us up and running uh, during this difficult time. And while Tom is away, being a new dad. We are extremely humbled by your support. And I want to offer you the most meta thing that I've ever done. Uh, Of course, our bonus episode that patrons receive is called the takeout, right? So this episode of the takeout, which will be released in a few days here, will be about the history of New York city takeout. So tune in for that and support us on Patreon. If you'd like to listen to that show in addition, I want to give a very special Bowery Boys shout-out to, to recent supporters Keenan from Long Island, John C. from Georgia, David B. from Virginia, Christopher M. from Connecticut, Sherry D. from Texas, David P. from Kentucky, Holly M. from London, England, and Ian M. from Australia. So thank you very much for listening. There will be a new Bowery Boys episode next friday we're doing this weekly thing here for a little while so stay tuned have a great new york week whether you live here or not